This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Talking about, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. When should we realistically expect a vaccine? Developed, distributed, how long can we expect to be wearing face masks and keeping socially distant from each other? You'll hear from the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, with some hard truths on where we are and where we are going. Without reaching a deal on a fifth COVID-19 stimulus package, the Senate left Congress today for August recess until September the 8th. Now, never mind, Tens of thousands of small businesses have shut down for good. Never mind, millions of Americans are still out of work, although we saw the number of unemployment claims decrease last week. With no relief package in sight, what does the future hold for America's small businesses? Loneliness is a serious health risk, especially for the most vulnerable population during the pandemic, forced to isolate amid the coronavirus fears. Now some states are deploying robots to fight loneliness among senior citizens. We all desperately want a safe and effective vaccine against COVID-19 to get here as quickly as possible, hopefully paving the way for a return to normalcy. There are multiple efforts underway in dozens of different laboratories in several different countries to rapidly develop a vaccine with some hopes that maybe we'll have one by the fall or the end of next year or the early part of 2021. We're going to talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci's boss. He's a physician geneticist. He's been taking a long view on our fights to contain this coronavirus. Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Collins, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Glad to be with you, Mike and Charles. So, uh, you know, everybody, uh, almost any time you pick up an article or you turn on the TV or radio and and you hear people talking about the pandemic, you get all this stuff about, well, by the fall, we're likely to have a vaccine. But even if a vaccine is successfully announced in the fall, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go to your, your doctor sometime this year or even early next year and say, hey, doc, give me a give me a vaccine for COVID, are you? Well, let's walk through this. And actually, I'm a scientist and a physician and in the middle of all this. So um, I can tell you that actually, I think the, the credible part of this information hasn't changed a lot in the last two or three months. We are in a place uh, where the development of vaccines, uh, six of them now in the United States, has moved forward at a pace never previously achieved uh, by figuring out how to do things very efficiently. And there are now large-scale trials underway of those vaccines to see if they work in as many as 30,000 people for each one of those. And by the way, if your listeners are interested in potentially being contacted about being part of one of those vaccine trials, they can go to coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org and uh, register their interest. That doesn't commit you to anything, but it might mean that somebody will call you up and say, okay, are you willing to hear about this? Coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org. So where we are, uh, those vaccine trials are underway, a couple of them already, and a couple more will get started in the next month or two. And if all goes well, we would expect that by October, early November, perhaps uh, you'd start to have enough data for the FDA to look at this and say whether this vaccine is safe 
and effective. And that's what you want to know. That's why we do the clinical trials. That's what Russia kind of skips. We might want to come back to that. (laughs) And so if all goes well, we would then expect, I think, by the end of the year, that one or more of these vaccines would have, in fact, passed muster in the most rigorous scientific way to say that this really is going to prevent disease and it's safe. Now you ask, does that mean that any of us could then go to the doc and say, okay, I'm ready? Well, one thing we're doing, which has never been done before, is to actually start manufacturing now uh, for all these vaccines at government expense so that we won't end up with a very long wait time after you know it works before you can actually see people starting to get the vaccine administered. So there will be, by the end of this year, tens of millions of doses of any of these vaccines that succeed. Now, of course, that's not 360 million doses. <laughs> that's not all of us. So there will have to be priorities. And then there will be, in the early part of 2021, assuming there's one of these or more than one that's working, a rapid scale-up of that production. So that I think most people who were interested in the vaccine, if we've got one that's successful, would be able to get immunized by the spring. That's what I would say. And what would that look like? You could literally go to your doctor and ask for one, or you go to the pharmacy, or are there going to be big drive-through, give me a shot in the arm and send me on my way operations? All of the above. Uh, You would really want to make it as easy as possible uh, for people to get it from their doctors, from the pharmacy. Maybe we activate the drive-throughs that have been used for testing and turn them into vaccination opportunities. Because uh, you will want to be really efficient about this, and people are already thinking about how to make sure that works and how to be sure the vaccine gets distributed uh, all over the country uh, to where the people are. But yeah, that's the kind of thing you could imagine happening a big uh, push. Anybody who was alive during the polio vaccinations might remember going to your elementary school, I think I did, and getting that particular vaccine because that was a place where everybody could congregate. We might use schools again. Yeah, I remember that uh, too. Uh, but 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 now let, let, let's introduce some of the ifs, ands, and buts here because I think there are sure. some ifs, ands, and buts. Uh, one of them is uh, I actually was, and we've talked about this in the show, one of those people that I did sign up on the website. And uh, I, I talked, uh, but nothing uh, comprehensive yet, with one of the manufacturers, one of the trials for one of the vaccines. And I think they're all the same. These are two-year studies, uh, and you have to, and you're supposed to commit to a two-year study. And that does raise the question in the minds of some people, especially those who are somewhat concerned that this is being rushed so quickly that maybe the vaccines won't be that safe, that even if they pronounce that the data shows by October or November of this year that they're perfectly safe and they're effective, then why do you need the two-year trial? I think that is an abundance of caution. Most of the time, if you're going to have a safety issue with a drug or a vaccine, you will know it in the first couple of days or certainly the first couple of weeks. But if you really want to be sure with people who've already signed up and agreed to take part of this, why not follow for a couple of years and see if anything surprising happens? We don't expect that. That's not generally been the case. In fact, it's almost never been the case with a vaccine. But if you really want to be able to say 10 years from now, everything you could possibly say about a vaccine, because we'll probably still be needing to use it, why not collect that data? And I don't want anybody to think that's because there's a strong likelihood of some late effect that everybody is expecting to happen. We do not expect that. But I'm a scientist. I would want to know every bit of data I could collect. Let's collect it and see what's there. 
Dr. Francis Collins, geneticist, director of the National Institutes of Health, the man in charge of learning the lessons of this pandemic and applying them to the next one. So back to that kind of a question, why haven't we applied the lessons from the previous pandemic to this one? Well, it's a good question. I don't think anybody would look at the way that the United States has dealt with this one and say we took full advantage of the things that we have learned from previous influenza or Zika or even Ebola, although we had very few of those cases in our own country. Um, I think, though, there was something unique about this coronavirus that did not really match with previous expectations uh, that made it particularly difficult. And that was the fact that people could get infected with this virus and spread it uh, quite liberally without having any symptoms. That's not the way viruses are supposed to work. Respiratory viruses, whether it's influenza or most of the others that we know about and experience, really don't become infectious unless you already are sick and you're likely, therefore, to be at home and in bed. That's not the way that this SARS-CoV-2 works. And so it has spread like a wildfire because of that parameter. And that's why everybody needs to wear a mask now once we figure that out. But we didn't know that at first. And so it got around really quickly before it was fully apparent just how bad it was going to be. So we talked about vaccines. Let's talk a little bit about potential therapeutics, because I think a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I just want something that the minute I think I have symptoms or my doctor tells me that I've now been diagnosed with COVID-19, you know, I can get a prescription for, go down to the corner pharmacy, pop a couple of pills, and I'll be almost as good as new in a quick amount of time. Is there anything, anything at all like that in the pipeline? Wouldn't that be nice? Yes, there is a pipeline. That's part of my job. And we have this partnership between multiple government agencies, academic institutions, and 20 pharmaceutical companies all working together in an unprecedented team effort to identify what those treatments might be that would be safe and effective. We already know a couple of them, although they're for sicker people. Remdesivir uh, is an antiviral. Dexamethasone is a steroid. Those have helped people and saved lives. But in the pipeline are some other things that are looking pretty interesting. Maybe one we ought to mention is this monoclonal antibody approach. We know that the way we all get over these viral illnesses is by making our own antibodies. But could you actually provide antibodies to somebody early on and keep them from ever getting sick in the first place? So the monoclonal antibodies derived from survivors are now in clinical trials, and we are looking forward to see what they could do, maybe even for people who are just showing up in the clinic, not necessarily people who are sick in the hospital. Well, well, we should know that in a couple of months. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because there is, an, and you probably saw it, uh, a New York Times piece today saying that they're having problems in a lot of parts of the country getting enough people because uh, either the, the hospitals are overworked and they don't have the time to mount these trials or people are somewhat skeptical or cautious and don't want to register for these and that it's going slower than they thought. Does that jibe with yeah. your understanding? It does, and I, I saw that story as well, and it does jive with the challenges we're having. I think it's mostly because the places where people are really sick, the docks are so stretched already that it's hard to stop and say to somebody, would you like to take part in an experimental clinical trial? They're just running from one bed to the next. I think patients are really interested in this. Our, our experience has been that when people are offered the chance to take part in one of these therapeutic trials, they say, well, yeah, let's see what we can do here especially if you can tell me that this is probably safe and the worst thing that will happen is it won't help me. Uh, but it is a challenge. Uh, we're really just beginning to get this started. I think we will see in the next couple of weeks ways to get around the fact that this has been a tough start uh, because of everybody being so busy in the hospital. 
I want to go back to something you said in the last segment we were talking about the vaccine. You said, you know, maybe we still need this in, in five to ten years in pockets. What does the long game look like? How this circulates? Does it just become something we deal with? Because I listened to a podcast the other day with, with Dr. Fauci in, and he said, look, you can still find bits of the 1918 Spanish flu and the flus that we get now. It floats around. Yeah, I, Tony Fauci and I talk about this a lot, and I think there is no reason to expect that this virus is just going to disappear and that'll be that. It's a very effective means of replicating itself, and I don't know why it would decide to give up on a very successful strategy. I think we can drive the seriousness of it way back uh, by a vaccine, especially if we can get a substantial proportion of the population immunized, but it will still keep coming back from time to time. It may, over the course of time, change a little bit, and it might mean, therefore, the vaccine has to be upgraded and redesigned in order to cover the newer strains, just the way we do with flu, although I don't think this will change as quickly as flu does. Yeah, this is one for uh, many, many years to come. This is not going to be altogether gone in 2021, although it'll be gone in the experience, I hope, of most of us for a while. I'm sure you're going to love this question, but uh, hydroxychloroquine, can, can we bury that? Or is there some reason to think that it may be effective in some way for some people who get uh, COVID-19? If you look at all of the data, there is no reason to believe that hydroxychloroquine has provided any real benefit in this disease. There are certainly anecdotal reports. Uh, there are published papers where this was not done in a randomized, controlled way, uh, where it looks as if people got better, but how do you know they weren't going to get better anyway? Every one of the randomized controlled trials, which is the only way you really know, have failed to show any benefit from hydroxychloroquine. It's time to move on from this one. Dr. Francis Collins, Director, National Institutes of Health. Doctor, thanks for coming on. I was glad to be with you, uh, Charles and Mike. Thanks for what you're doing to spread the information that everybody's looking for. United States senators have left Washington, D.C. and gone home for the summer, which means a new coronavirus relief package weeks away now. While federal lawmakers enjoy their break, millions of Americans still do not have any means to make money. Yes, new unemployment claims for last week dropped over a million for the first time since March, but tens of thousands of small businesses are facing an uncertain future. KYW's Matt Leon spoke with David Fiorenza, Associate Professor of Practice at the Villanova School of Business, taking a look at the recession crystal ball. Let's start with unemployment. Obviously, it's a number we track to see just how bad things are. And for the first time, the new claims came in under a million, first time since the pandemic started. And obviously, going down is good news. But boy, are we getting a little uh, numb to the idea of just how big this number still is? Matt, that's a good way to start off our podcast. You are correct. I've been waiting for this day when I could say that unemployment is below a million. However, to say that number, it's still high. A 963,000 people, that's really high. Uh, we have some reductions, but I still have concerns. I'm not seeing it as a trend, even though it's going down, because I think the fact that we could see some spikes in coronavirus, which could wipe out all these gains that we're going to talk about today in the economy. We still haven't gotten a new coronavirus relief stimulus package from Congress, however you want to frame it. Uh, I know I figured we would have had one by now. Uh, how troubling is it that they haven't passed one, and do you still think we'll get one eventually? 
I think we will get one eventually. I'm not going to hold my breath, and I don't want anybody else to hold their breath. Uh, consumer spending has been doing very well. Retail sales have been doing very well. However, July 31st seems so long ago. It was two weeks away. And the fact that if they haven't passed anything yet, it could be another week or two. And that big gap, to me, in spending and getting some kind of stimulus to people, even though it causes debt, and even though it's a concern that people aren't working, people still need some money every week so they can go out and at least take care of some of their obligations. Do you have any, and I don't know if concern is the word, but we talked about the unemployment numbers going down, and obviously that's the direction everybody wants to see them go. But do you have any concerns that that could give some politicians a false sense of security, that another stimulus package really isn't needed? I think so. I think when you look at April's numbers of 14.7% unemployment, and then you look at July of 10.2%, you say, wow, we're really coming down over the last four months. 10.2%, I, I cannot remember the day that we saw unemployment over 10%. It may have been in the early 1980s. I want to talk a little bit about businesses, small businesses. I think I saw somewhere that more businesses lost in the last three months than all of the Great Recession. Um, that's really kind of sobering, and you kind of see it in places where you see for rents or you know doors boarded up. Uh, just kind of talk about the state of these small businesses, and they've still got a long road to hoe, don't they? They really do, especially in some of these places in New Jersey and Pennsylvania that are what I call our mid-sized cities. For example, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, you start taking away the minor league baseball, you start taking away some of the events that these places have in town, such as festivals and carnivals, places like Bethlehem, their music fest, most of it being virtual. And a lot of your small, what we always call traditionally mom and pop stores may not be able to make it, as well as restaurants. Uh, it's really fitting out those who can survive and those who cannot survive. So it's going to be hard to get people back to work if they are normally used to being in the hospitality business. They're going to have to look for other jobs, unfortunately, especially those who love being in hospitality. They love the restaurant business. They love the hotel business. So I have a concern of a lot of these cities that are in the 50,000 range and below that are going to be hurting in the next few months and even into next year before they start to rebound. Uh, you referenced retail sales earlier. I think uh, for July they were up. It was only 1.2%. But I feel like a lot of the retail numbers, we've kind of got to have an asterisk just simply because uh, you've got a lot of places that are shutting down again, pulling back. Uh, what are your thoughts on those retail sales numbers? Absolutely, Matt. You're right about that when you said that some of those places may have to shut down again. The retail sales, they covered things such as restaurants, stores, even online, and there was lots of brisk sales in May and June, and then even in July, it slowed down a little bit. My concern is that if we start to see a second spike, a third spike, uh, what is that going to do for the retail sales? Uh, what's it going to do for the sales as we approach the Christmas and holiday season? What's it going to do even a step back for Halloween, which has become a huge huge economic indicator for the country where people have celebrations and parties and they buy outfits and they, they go to different uh, attractions in our area, such as Eastern State Penitentiary. What's going to happen to all the restaurants who thrive during those times? Uh, are we going to see another contraction? I, I am cautioning that that 1.2% is great. It's positive. 
I feel good about it, but I'm always looking in my rearview mirror for the next incident that may occur. The past few months have been incredibly lonely times for many older adults who have been forced to isolate themselves during the pandemic, many turning to their four-legged companions for comfort. But, you know, there are some people who just can't afford to take care of real pets. And, you know, there were some concerns about cats possibly transmitting the coronavirus. So now robot pets are gaining popularity. The states of Alabama, New York, Florida, and Pennsylvania have partnered with robotic pet manufacturer Ageless Innovation to combat loneliness for senior citizens with robot versions of cats and dogs. Here's Ageless Innovation CEO Ted Fisher describing how his robotic kitten operates. Like most cats, our cat doesn't do what you want it to do when you want it to do it, so it's a very random play pattern, as we call it. And so just because you stroke its back doesn't mean that you're going to get the same response, but it has 32 sounds. It rolls over, it preens, uh, it purrs. But is it the same as the real thing? Listen, you know, we're not trying to fool anybody and say these are real pets. We're not trying to replace real pets if real pet is, a, is the right solution for the older adult. What we know is that there are a lot of situations and circumstances where older adults can no longer have real pets. I do just want to say I find it fascinating and wonderful as a dog person even that they knew that they had to make the robot cat aloof or it wouldn't be like a cat. You know? <laughs> yes, because cats really don't care. <laughs> it has to be at least a little bit realistic. The, uh, st- the state of New York, by the way, tested the robotic pets with isolated older adults and the uh, company claims 70% of people participated in the study reported a decrease in loneliness after using a robotic pet for just one year. Thanks for listening to us. Stay well. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.